morning. And so far, this is a letter whose central theme was to encourage those dealing with turbulent times, difficulty, persecution. Again, if you've been here, you know that the church has been, many of these believers, first century church, have been scattered. This letter went to numerous cities, not just to one city, like it didn't go to Philippi or Ephesus. It went to many cities, reaching out to all the first century Christians because they were all dealing with the same thing. Chapter 4 ended with Peter telling them to be unashamed, to glorify God in the face of persecution, to be willing to suffer for the gospel's sake, to walk in obedience to the gospel of God, to commit their soul to the Lord by being faithful to the Creator. And so this entire book has been written to them and he's given them exhortations and encouragement of how to live in the face of such trials and difficulty. And now he's going to give some real practical application for those involved in ministry and for those who are newer in the faith. And so that pretty much covers everybody, doesn't it? Those who are involved in ministry and those who are newer in the faith. And this last chapter is a great exhortation. First, we're going to see for pastors and those in ministry. And then secondly, for those who maybe are just getting to know the Lord, maybe newer in their faith, there's some some words of encouragement to them as well. So we're going to receive an exhortation of how the body of Christ should function in this morning's text, written again in the midst of great suffering and persecution, and again written not, not only for the people then, but for us today. Now remember that, and I know I say this every week, but we always have new people and we need to be reminded, but this was persecution at a level unlike ever seen before and maybe since. We're going to see it again one day, but truly the time of Caesar Nero, he's the one that you know, burnt Rome to the ground and blamed it on the Christians. They started feeding Christians to lions. That's where it came from. They, started, you know, they would take Christians and wrap them up in, in animal skins and feed them to wild beasts to tear them to pieces. And they were setting Christians on fire. And so when we read these words of exhortation, you know, the result for them wasn't that their neighbor was going to stop talking to them or that they might lose their job. You know, the things that we stress about, for them it was they could lose their life. Their family members might die. But notice the exhortation is there nonetheless, that even in the face of losing life, we must stand for the Lord. He laid down his life for us. How can we not live our lives for him? And so it's, the time is at hand. He's exhorting them. Things are about to get worse, even though they don't know it. And Peter is going to give this clear exhortation on how the body of Christ should function. And he's going to begin by exhorting the pastors, as I said, and then move on to those who are newer in the faith. So if you're a note taker this morning, I titled the message, Responding to God's Calling. But in this case, responding to God's calling in the, in the midst of great difficulty. Responding to God's calling when things are really tough. Guys, a lot of us know that we're called by God, but we've got excuses and reasons why we can't serve God right now. There's things that are in the way. There's things that we're doing. There, you know, when this thing gets out of the way, then I'll serve God. Well, boy, if anybody had an excuse and a reason to postpone serving God, it was these early Christians whose lives could potentially be taken. And yet the exhortation is there, and the exhortation is there for us this morning. So again, if you're a note-taker, responding to God's calling. Again, if you're a born-again believer, you have a calling on your life. And if Peter's going to exhort these believers in the midst of a godless society under the threat of persecution to be faithful to the calling God has placed on their lives and may we learn from them. So first, the pastor's calling. The calling to be a faithful shepherd. And this is, 
aimed mainly at pastors, but it really applies to everyone who serves in ministry. Second of all, the calling of those who are younger in the faith. Sometimes we think, well, I've only been a Christian two months, six months, a year, two years, whatever the number is. Certainly God doesn't expect me to be serving. Guys, if he saved you, it's time to start serving him. Amen? It's not something we do that we graduate to one day. God's got a calling on our lives from the point of salvation. Thirdly, we're going to see a prayer for strength to respond to God's calling. It's obvious it's not easy. It's obvious that there are things that can get in the way. And there's a prayer coming from Peter as he closes out the letter to encourage them, to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf, that they would respond in obedience to God's calling. And then finally, we're going to see some parting words of encouragement. So let's begin in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 5, responding to God's calling. In this case, in the midst of great difficulty, we're going to begin with the pastor's calling. Now this is when you get to grade me, okay? And you get to grade the other pastors that you know, but also those who are in ministry. And we're going to see the exhortation here. And those of you, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you have a desire to serve in ministry. You have a desire maybe to pastor one day. This is a great acid test. This is a great word of exhortation for you, and it's a great word of exhortation for me. So it says this in verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort. Now what does the word elder mean? In the Bible, elder doesn't necessarily equate to age, though it certainly can. The word elder does not speak of chronological age, but spiritual maturity. I have known people, absolute fact, I have known people who are 14 or 15 years old who've been walking with God for a year who are more spiritually mature than someone who's in their 70s walking with God for 50 years. Why? Because someone's very serious and passionate about their faith and is truly pursuing God and other people are kind of just on the lukewarm walk with the Lord. Now, at the same time, that young person would never be an elder in the church. The Bible says to lay hands on no man quickly. It's someone who's been serving God over a length of time. Guys, we can pretend to be on fire for God for a little while. We need to just watch. Amen? And over time, the truth comes out. That's why I think a one-year betrothal period before you get married is a really good idea. Pastor Dave's opinion. Why? Because somebody can be really good for a month or two. Amen? You want to find out who that person really is. And the same is true in ministry. You can be really gung-ho for a minute. And you know what? In your flesh, you can do things really well and you can strive for a short period of time. But if you're going to do it for a long period of time, it's only going to happen if the Holy Spirit is the one sustaining you. If it's your flesh sustaining you, you're going to burn out over time. So the word elder, just to give you understanding, I'm going to go through the three words. There's elder, bishop, and pastor. Now, churches today have taken them to mean different positions, which are not biblical, by the way. The bishop, bishop, pastor, and elder are all the same person. You know, churches, they got the bishop who oversees the pastors, who has these elders, but it's all the same person. One, the first one, elder, describes who he is. He must be a spiritually mature man of God. The word is presbuteros. I know I don't go into those words a lot, but it's where you get the word presbyterian. Why is it a Presbyterian church? Because it is elder-run church. Now, the word bishop is where we get the word Episcopal. So an Episcopal church is a bishop or a pastor-run church. Now, elder describes the man, he's spiritually mature. Bishop describes what he does. 
He oversees the body of Christ. That's what the word means, overseer. And then pastor describes the method. How does he do it? He shepherds the flock. And so the word he's speaking, are these are the elders who've been called by God to lead spiritually. They needed to be exhorted. Hey, when times are tough, don't think that your pastors or the pastors of the churches are all a bunch of supermen who never struggle with trials or never are fearful in the face of adversity. And here they are. Now, guys, if there's a target on every Christian's back, how do you think it is for the elders and the pastors in those days? If we can kill a pastor... We can feed him to the lions. We might scare the entire flock. And so the, there's a desire or a, a potential to be fearful and to pull back. And the exhortation here, the word to them is to not pull back, to not be fearful, but to be faithful to the calling God has placed upon them. Elders need to be exhorted today because they can lose sight of their true calling When we begin to focus on our circumstances, when we fear men more than we fear God, we're going to cease to be effective in what God's called us to do. I was just sharing a little while ago. You know what? I want to share this with you and know that I love you and let me share it with you from my heart. I'm really not all that concerned about what you think about me. Because if I was, I would get up here and teach the most watered-down message you've ever heard in your life. I would be afraid, well, if I say that, I might offend somebody. Guys, I need to be fearful of the true and living God who I will stand before one day and be accountable for every word that came out of my mouth. And if I'm faithful to that, I'm doing the best thing in the world I can do for you. I love you guys. I truly love you guys. Supernaturally love you guys. I know God's given that to me. But at the same time, I love God more. And I want to be faithful to him. And so the exhortation needs to be given to pastors because pastors, just like anyone else, can look at their circumstances and be overwhelmed. And today it's not the fear of being put to death, at least not in this country. The fear today is I might lose my crowd if I don't become more entertaining. I might lose them to the church down the street that's got Bozo the Clown in the bounce houses, so we better get some ourselves. You know what? I need to tell people what they want to hear so they'll like me better. I need to make it a popular and a fun place. Let's lose the words like sin and the cross and, the, and repentance because those are offensive words. And let's just talk about a positive mental attitude. You think I'm kidding. That's much of the church today. And if you watch Christian television, it's rampant. Lord, help us to never fall into that trap. And then Peter says to them, I am a fellow elder. Peter introduced himself at the beginning of the letter as an apostle. Apostle is one sent out by God with a mission to be an apostle. In his case, he had to have seen Jesus, and we know that he did. But he also describes himself as a fellow elder. A couple things I want you to see here. Notice he doesn't refer to himself as Pope Peter. Amen? You know, the Catholic Church today say Peter was the first pope. Peter seemed to not know that. Because Peter simply refers to himself as, I'm just another pastor, I'm just another elder like you guys. I can relate to you, I know exactly what you're going through, I've been right where you are, so these words are coming from a fellow laborer in the ministry. Another elder, a man who's called with the same calling as you have. He focuses on the fact that he is a fellow fellow elder, he knows what they're going through. Now, Peter, as a fellow elder, is qualified to speak to these guys. 
And though Peter was clearly the prominent disciple among the twelves, twelve, again, he claims no special you know, position, no special authority. The Lord is speaking through him. He's meeting these guys right where they are. Now understand, being an elder in those days was not something to aspire to for the most part. Now again, the Bible says if someone desires that position, they desire a good thing, but not let many of you be teachers for a higher level of accountability. And guys, when pastors are being burnt at the stake, uh, kind of hard to get recruits. Uh, you know, I think you could, you'd be the pastor. I'll just, I'll help you, bro. You didn't knock yourself out, right? You don't want to necessarily be the front one on the line. But so the word here is coming to them to encourage those who in the midst of these great trials, no doubt, just like the body shrinking away, they too may have been tempted to do the same. And then he says this, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He speaks of his own intimate fellowship with the Lord. Can I say this? Anybody who serves in ministry must first and foremost, above all else, be focused on his own or her own personal intimate relationship with the Lord. If I do not spend time in God's presence, I've got nothing to give you. If you do not spend time in God's presence seeking the Lord, you've got nothing to give the kids in the children's ministry. Guys, it's got to come from here and pour out this way. And if there's no intimate time with the Lord, if there's no intimate fellowship, Peter, pointing back, says, hey, I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. I had an intimate relationship with him. And we know Peter's relationship with Christ, while he learned a great deal, he didn't do so well. Right? Peter was Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim. Peter. Peter, Mr. Correcting the Lord. Peter. Peter, Mr. Telling Jesus he doesn't get it. Peter. Peter, Mr. Lopping off guys' ears, Peter. Peter falling asleep when he should have been praying, Peter. That's the Peter. Peter who denied Jesus Christ because the little girl said, oh, you're one of them. No, I'm not. And he cursed and ran away and hid. Peter. But you know what's great about that? Here's Peter writing this letter. Here's Peter being used mildly by God. Peter would be the one who would get up after Pentecost and preach the message and 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom in that single day. What happened? Peter got baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. And that's what has to happen in our lives if we're going to be effective. The word here, witness, is the word martyr. Martyr. We think of that today of someone laying down their life for the Lord, but a martyr means a witness who tells what they have seen and heard. That's what it really means. A martyr is someone who is a witness, who's seen it, and who is unashamed to tell everybody about it. Guys, the best thing we can do is share our testimony with somebody. It's irrefutable. If you stand in front of somebody and say, look, here's who I was, I met Jesus Christ, and here's who I am. How do you argue with that? Guys, can I encourage you to share your testimony? And so he says to them, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He had seen him on the cross, no doubt from a distance maybe. We know that he, he saw him being beaten. We know that he saw all that he went through firsthand and he knew how the Savior suffered. And now he's telling them and encouraging them that suffering is a part of following Jesus Christ. He says, also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Now I believe this is a reference to the transfiguration. Peter had firsthand, offering, firsthand knowledge of his suffering, but also of his being glorified. Each case had resulted in Peter, again, failing miserably. Remember when he saw him suffering, he denied the Lord, but when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you guys remember the story, you know, Jesus had the 12 apostles, but he also had three guys in there that he took with him special places, Peter, James, and John. 
And when he would go off to pray sometimes, he would just take those three guys. And when he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, we know that there the glory of the Lord was revealed. And when Peter saw it, he said, ooh. And remember, Elijah and Moses saw up and he says, hey, why don't we stay here and we build tabernacles for all three of you? He's putting Jesus on the same level with the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. And the Lord rebuked him. The Lord rebuked him to the point of saying, get thee behind me, Satan. Do you remember that? That's a rebuke. If Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, not good. You don't want that. And, and so Peter had seen his glory revealed. He had seen the suffering our God had gone through. But you know what is amazing? Peter, throughout this entire letter, is exhorting them that, you know what, you're facing death, it's okay, you be faithful. Why? Because he had seen the glory revealed. And he knew what was coming. Guys, can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? Heaven is so much better than we think. And we need not to be fearful and afraid and worried and anxious because God is on the throne. And you know what? If he wants me to go to heaven, then let's go. Amen? But you see here that Peter's exhortation to them is coming from a fellow elder who had seen both the suffering that Jesus endured, but also the glory that was revealed in him and how powerful it indeed was. What a testimony it was. He had witnessed God's glory firsthand, and he's encouraging them to look up. So now he's given them the exhortation, who he is, I'm a fellow elder, I've seen the suffering, I've seen the glory. Now here comes the exhortation to the pastors. What does he say? Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. The word shepherd there means to tend, to feed, and to keep. Now first of all, notice whose flock it is. It's God's flock, amen? I, nothing nauseates me more than I hear a pastor talk about my sheep. They're not yours, they're his. Amen? You guys are not followers of Dave Johnston. If you are, you're in big trouble. Better be followers of Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? If you hung around me five minutes, you would not be a follower of mine anymore. Okay? Here's the point. The exhortation he's making here, the encouragement he's giving them here is, look, you're shepherding God's flock. You guys are under shepherds. He's the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. You're just the under shepherds watching someone else's sheep. And if you're watching God's sheep, how, should, how do you think you should take care of them? Can you imagine if Almighty God came to your house, dropped off five sheep and said, I'm going to be back next week. Now you watch them. I don't think I'd sleep. How about you? I'm going to be back and I'm going to see how you took care of my sheep. Oh, right? I mean, I'd buy more food than I needed. I would make sure they're fed and cared for and they'd probably be sleeping in my room and I'd be sleeping out on the deck or something, right? I mean, you'd be like, hey, these are God's sheep. How, how much we need to care for them and tend them and feed them and keep them. You know what? The kids in the three, four, and five-year-old class are the Lord's sheep. And we need to be just as concerned about how we tend to those five-year-olds, how we tend to the children in the nursery, how we tend to any ministry God has placed us over with the realization we will be accountable one day for how faithful we were to those that God has placed in our care. So what are the characteristics of a shepherd? You know what? He wants to be where the sheep are. He looks for every opportunity to be around the sheep. I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. You know what I look for in someone who I believe is called to be a pastor? If the doors open at church, they're there. Pastor Dave, that seems legalistic. No, it's just, a, it's just the outpouring of someone who's called. If you're called to do something, you want to be where the people are. 
I want to be there. People are going to be there. Oh, I want to be there. Why? Because I love them. I want to minister to them. I want to tend to them. I want to care for them. That's the heart of someone who's called. But also, a shepherd is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. He's available. He's approachable. He's never too tired or too busy to tend to the sheep. That's not a shepherd. Can you imagine a shepherd? A wolf's coming. A wolf's coming. I'm tired. Hope they don't get too many of them. Hope he gets, hope he gets full after all, like two or three, man. I would, you know, a bunch of them die. That's going to be rough. But I'm just, I'm just too tired. A shepherd is never off duty. He's always got a replacement, someone to watch over him. And he's willing to go fight the lion, fight the bear, fight the wolf, whatever he has to do. Why? Because those sheep are in his care, even to his own harm. And so the exhortation here is shepherd the flock of God. Feed, tend, care for the sheep that are not yours but the Lord's. He's given them into your care. You're going to be accountable one day. Now again, remember, potential death is outside their door. Persecution is out of control. It would be easy to just step back. And the exhortation is don't step back. Shepherd them. Love them. Calling is revealed in a heart to serve. But along with a heart to serve, he must be faithful to feed the sheep, the milk, and the meat of God's word. Although he knew tough times were coming, Peter says, don't neglect your, your main responsibility, which is to feed the flock of God. A pastor's first calling is to feed the sheep. Peter no doubt remembers, remember that when Peter denied the Lord how many times? Three times. And remember when he denied him the third time, he's standing over a fire. It was a certain kind of fire, though in the Bible the word is anthrokia. Only, it's only in the Bible twice. And it speaks of a hot coal fire. If you've ever been around coal on fire, it smells, it's got its own distinct smell, doesn't it? And he's standing over that hot coal fire and he denies the Lord for the third time and he runs away and weeps bitterly. Well, Some time passes, we get to John 21, and the Lord calls him after he'd been resurrected, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he said to the the women women he appeared to, he said, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I've risen. And boy, I love that. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Peter's away weeping bitterly, feeling like he's failed his Savior, he can never be forgiven, and the Lord comes back, and the first thing he says is, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I've risen. Can you imagine what those words must have sounded like to him? But what's really awesome, in John 21, Jesus says to Peter, Peter's been restored, the Lord appears to him, he's out fishing, he calls him in, and when he calls him in, they're cooking fish, and they're over the fire, and guess what the kind of fire it is? It's only other, one other place in the Bible, it's anthrokia again. I can't smell wet grass without thinking of football. I played football from the time I was 8 till I was 22. There's certain smells you smell, and they bring you back to something. And he's sitting there around the hot coal fire. And where he had denied the Lord three times, this time the Lord asked him a question three times. Peter, do you love me? And then he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he says, feed my sheep. Then he says, ask him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And then the next time he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. What I love about this is he denied the Lord three times, now sitting there with that same smell, bringing him back to that same place. He gets three times to confess his love for the Lord. Isn't our God good? But what's awesome is how does he express his love for the Lord as an elder, as a pastor? What does he do to express his love for the Lord? He feeds the Lord's sheep. How does a pastor express his love for the Lord? He feeds the sheep that God has allowed him to watch over. 
The way that I show my love for God is to teach the word of God to you guys. That's what this says. Feed the sheep. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. In a time when churches and pastors are bombarded, again, with church growth books and Christian activities and Christian recreation, what we need is the word of God. And there's just such a, again, to to express to pastors every chance I get, guys, teaching them the word of God is the way you express love for the Lord. It's you being obedient to God's calling he's placed upon your life. Now, a few years back, I was at the senior pastor's conference. I'm not one to give long illustrations, but I'm going to do it because I think it's a great one. Sandy Adams was talking on teaching on the power of God's word. And he tells the story of a woman going into a store and buying a pet parrot. And she brings, and she's told that this parrot will talk. She's an older lady, she's kind of lonely, so she brings the parrot home, and she sets the parrot in her house, and she walks by the cage, and she talks to the parrot for three days, and the parrot never says anything. So she goes back to the store, and she says to the owner of the pet store, that that parrot is not talking. He says, you know, ma'am, I'll tell you what could help. Get that parrot a mirror. Because if that parrot can look at itself in the mirror, you know what? That parrot will start talking. Okay, so she gets a mirror, takes it home, puts it in the cage, and that parrot looks in the mirror, and no talking. Three more days go by, nothing. She goes back to the guy, hey, parrot, still not talking. Well, you know what? Parrots love ladders. Get that parrot a ladder. It'll climb up and down that ladder. It's climbing up and down that ladder. It'll be so happy. It'll just start talking. She goes home, puts the ladder in the cage. Three days later, no talking. She goes back. She's like, man. He's like, you know what? Want a swing. You get that parrot a swing, it'll be so happy, it'll just start talking. So about a week or so goes by, and the lady shows up in the pet store again, and pet, the owner says, was the parrot talking? I mean, you know, what's happening with the parrot? He goes, oh, parrot died. He died? Well, did, did he ever say anything? He said, well, yeah, he was laying at the bottom of the cage when I walked by, and with his last breath, he said, they got any food down at that pet store? <laughs> you know what? Today, we got pastors bringing mirrors and saying, look how wonderful you are. Look into your self-image. We got 12 steps to financial freedom and 12 ways to overcome your anger and climb up and down those ladders. We got rock and swing and worship. That'll draw them in. Guys, people are starving to death. You can have ladders and mirrors and swings. We need the word. It's the word of God that transforms lives. This is the exhortation. Guys, feed and tend the flock that God's given you care over. Don't entertain them, feed them. Otherwise, you'll have dead sheep or dead parrots or whatever saying, don't they have any food down at that store? You know what's amazing to me too? Is there are people who've been going to church forever don't even realize what it means to be fed because no one's ever fed them. Is that sad? That's heartbreaking. We need to be feeding the word of God. And then he says this, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as an overseer. Again, not a dictator. The pastor is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is. Amen? You know, pastor, one of the words is under rower. He's the guy at the bottom of the ship. That's what an under rower is. He's got the most thankless job that nobody sees. That's the, what, the word pastor. What's one of the translations for that word? He's an overseer. He's not a dictator. He's caring for the sheep. They're God's sheep. They're not his. And then it says this. Oversee them what? Not by compulsion, but willingly. 
Truly called don't call because somebody pushed them into it. I've said this many times. People get frustrated because I won't ask you to do anything. Just tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because if I tell you, you'll do it for me. If you're doing it for me, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Amen? You should be doing it because the Lord told you. If I call you, I have to sustain you. If God calls you, he will sustain you. We're to respond to the call of God, not to the arm twisting of men. We're going to stay here and turn the heater up until somebody volunteers for the nursery. You know what I mean? People just will berate you and beat you up. And you know what? I don't want that. I want people in there who want to be in there. Amen? Called to be in there. Counter to joy to be in there. And that's the exhortation here. God's army is not a bunch of paid mercenaries. It's an all-volunteer army. Amen? Then it says this, Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. True calling is, is seen not just in actions, but in attitude and motivation. The truly called will do it even if they're never paid, they're never promoted, they're never recognized. They see it as a get-to and not a have-to. They'll serve in a place where nobody sees them serving, and they'll be whistling to the Lord while they do it because they're doing it for Him. Guys, we need accolades for men if we're doing it for men. If you're bummed out because you're not being recognized enough for what you're doing, you're doing it with the wrong heart. That's the exhortation here. Overseers, not by compulsion. Not doing it you know, in a way to you know, do it willingly, not for dishonest gain. Money should never be the motivation for one serving in ministry. You know, I'm part, I, I love the church as a whole, but I will say this. One of the things I do love about the Calvary Chapel movement if you didn't know this, if you feel called to go pastor a church, you know what happens? You get in your car and you go. And when you get there, you start a church. And when you start the church, you will get a full-time job. There's no headquarters sending you a paycheck. You go work 40, 50 hours a week, and then you spend all your spare time studying and, and being a father and doing all those things. And, and then you know what? And you pray that God will bring those who can hold up your hands. But in the meantime, you just be faithful to it. And you know what? Where God guides, God provides. And if someone's called, the sheep will, how do you know someone's a shepherd? The sheep follow. And you know what? In God's timing, the church will grow. But I'll tell you what, if that guy's not called, he'll never last. Because I'll tell you what, it's not easy. But if God's called you to do it, you can't do anything else. A lot of people say to me, how do I know I'm called? Can you do something else? Well, yeah, I guess I could. Then you're not called. Because if you're called, you can't do anything else. Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. I can't imagine if I, if I couldn't do, I'd, ah, I'd go nuts. Why? Because this is what God's called me to do. It's a get to. It's not a have to. Amen. And whatever ministry you're doing, I don't care if you're working in the bookstore, if you're working in the children's ministry, if you're working in the kitchen, wherever you are, I pray that it's a get-to and not a have-to. We'll shut it down before we have have-tos doing it. Amen? Let's have get-tos. I love seeing those who feel called by God and they just say, you know what, I'm going to lay, lay down my life. You know, two examples come to mind really quick. We'll move on to the next verse. You know, Mrs. Green, you guys have heard this before, but I'll share it again. She was the four and five-year-old teacher at the First Baptist Church of Wilmington for like 20-some-odd years. And I was in her class. And when I was four and a half years old, she led me to the Lord. And she was a faithful, godly woman. And she probably in heaven now. That was 40-something years ago, and she was an older lady then, so she's probably in heaven. But do you know that Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz is fruit of her ministry? 
Amen? Faithful to teach the four and five-year-olds. I also heard the story on a Firefighters for Christ video uh, tape where the guy was talking about it. He's a pastor, and his son was having open-heart surgery. And they're having to pull his ribs apart and do this gnarly surgery, and his son was only seven years old. And he's up in the hospital, and he heard, he heard some noise out on the fire escape. And they're up like 12 stories, and he goes out to the fire escape, and he opens the window, and there's the second grade teacher from the church that he pastors on her knees praying for this little boy. And he says, what are you doing? She said, well, they wouldn't let me in, so I wanted to be as close to him as I could as I prayed for him. That's calling, amen? That's someone who's got the pictures of the kids on her refrigerator and she's praying for them every day and she's excited and she's preparing and she can't wait to come and minister to the kids as opposed to someone who's like, it's 9.45, am I up this week? Oh, man. We don't want that, amen? We want those who are called it to get to. It's not a have to. This is the exhortation, the encouragement, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Verse 3 nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but an example to the flock. Pastors should not be on a power trip, lording their position over others. They must never use their position for personal gain. They're called to serve, not to grow rich. If I see another pastor with a name and acclaimment and talking about the fact that he's got a $10 million house is God's blessing upon his life, I'm going to be sick. That is so far away from the word of God. He's called to be a servant. Not to be served, to minister, to lay down his life. How sad, how tragic. To be examples to the flock. It says, the sobering fact is that pastors are examples whether they intend to be or not. It's interesting to see how a congregation takes on a personality of a pastor both in good ways and bad. If a pastor's got a heart for evangelism, the people tend to. If a pastor's got a heart for missions, the people tend to. If a pastor's got a heart for prayer, the people tend to. Now again, you can't blame it all on the pastor, but it's amazing how that does happen. And the pastor is an example. And so what? You know what? So are you if you're teaching the children. So are you if you're a table leader in the women's ministry. So are you wherever you're serving, you are an example to others whether you intend to be or not. That's the encouragement. That's the exhortation here. Not lording it over those who he has entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. They're his sheep. We need to care for them. The Bible says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Our lives should be consistent with our message. Amen? Hypocrisy chases more people away from the church than almost anything. If we say one thing and live another thing, Lord, help us to live what we believe. Verse 4. It says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Boy, this is, when I, read this, when I read this verse all week, when the chief shepherd appears, when he comes back for his sheep, you're going to be accountable. Oh. That's why 20 years later, still fear and trembling every time I teach the Bible. Why? I'm going to stand before him one day. And you know what? You're going to be accountable for whatever sheep God has placed in your care. And we should not take it lightly. We work for the Lord not for the sheep. We need to encourage and exhort. The reward is not with temporal riches, but an eternal one that will never fade away. Guys, a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
It should not be the things of this world that we strive for, but that will, that will outlast this life. The true riches are seeing people come to know Christ. Amen? The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. The rest of the stuff is perishing. And this is the exhortation. We're all called. We're all going to be accountable for what we do with God's calling upon our lives. So responding to God's calling. The pastor's calling to be faithful shepherd, not just in his actions, but in his attitude. A message that, um, a lifestyle that matches the message. And also one who feeds the sheep faithfully. Number two, the calling of those who are younger in the faith. Look what it says. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to to your elders. Ooh, ooh, I don't like that word. Do, Do people like the word submit? Is that like a real popular word today? People love that. Oh, yeah, I just want to submit to you. Not so much. People take obey and submit out of, their, out of their vows. I'm not submitting to him. I'm not obeying him. Are you out of your mind? I'm marrying him. That's it. You know what? This should be natural in the life of the believer. Submit. Now, younger, not just new, but newer. Not just the age, but the level of spiritual maturity you know what we live in a time where submission is mocked and rebellion is nurtured amen question authority right everything is question authority don't submit to anybody you're be your own person yeah how's that working out for you being your own person how's that working for you you know what it works terrible submit to the lord now The word elders, again, this speaks of those in spiritual headship in the church, but also it can speak of those who God's placed an authority over, your parents. And it says, we're all to be submissive to one another, each esteeming others greater than ourselves. Every one of us is called to submit. We're to submit to our boss at work. We're to submit to the the governing authorities. We're to pay our taxes, Romans 13. We're to submit But in this case, he's talking about within the church because here's the example. He's exhorted the pastors to stand up for God. Yes, you might lose your life. Stand anyway. Have an eternal perspective. Then he tells those who are hearing the word, you submit to what they've told you. But only, and let me say this, as they teach you the word. Guys, that's why I want you to have a Bible in your lap to make sure it's not Pastor Dave's opinions, but the word of God. You need to be looking at it and making sure that it's the word of God in front of you. It says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility humility is demonstrated with by submission it is the ability to cheerfully put away our own agenda for god's even if god's agenda is expressed through another person the word there to be clothed translate in a word that refers to somebody a slave putting on an apron before they got down on their feet got down their knees and washed someone's feet but guys who is the greatest example of that Jesus Christ, who being God, did not, you know, it wasn't robbery for him to be equal with God, but again, he took on humanity, made himself of no reputation, and he washed Judas's feet hours before he betrayed him. He washed Peter's feet hours before he denied him. He's our example, and we need to have a heart of submission. Then it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble we're called to submit and when that call to submit is often met with defiance submission is not a bad word but a godly one 
We need to quit using it the way the world uses it and use it the way the Bible uses it. We need to have that heart of submission. And then it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride. Who had pride? Who was the most pride? Lucifer. Lucifer was a beautiful angel in heaven, and he had the pride and the desire to be like the Most High, to be God. And guess what? He was thrown out of heaven because of pride. And you know what? Today, he tempts people with the very same sin that caused him to fall. Are we a prideful people? What's the answer? We are so stinking prideful. I'm always on my mind. I'm always thinking about me. How about you? Aren't you? When you wake up in the morning, who are you thinking about? Yourself. You've heard me say this before. I can prove you're prideful. I can prove you're self-centered. If I took a picture of this room developed it and put it on the wall, and you walked over there, whose picture would you look for first? Exactly. And the picture's good if you look good, right? Ooh, that's a good picture. That's pretty sweet. Everybody else could be out of focus, eyes red, but you look good. Oh, that's sweet. I like that picture. But you know what? If you look bad and everybody else looks good, oh, we need to tear that. We need to take another one. We can't have that up. We are so prideful. We are so self-centered. It's all about us. And the world we live in today, I mean, let's face it, the magazines, us, you, people, right? It's all about us. And we feed it, and we nurture it, and we promote it. You need, you need more self-esteem. I'm going to be sick if I hear that again. Don't we esteem ourselves too much? We're, yeah, that's my problem. I don't think about myself enough. I have never met that person. That person doesn't exist. I hate myself because I'm ugly. If you didn't have self-esteem, you'd be glad you were ugly. So that doesn't work. You know, the point I'm making is this. Pride says my will. Humility says thy will. Amen? Pride is it's all about me. What's comfortable for me? What's going to work for me? You know what I encourage you with? Check your pride in your prayer life. How much of your prayer life is spent praying for you? I'm not saying you shouldn't pray and ask God and seek his will and his direction. Of course you should. But can I encourage you? There's much time you spend praying for yourself. We've got to spend a lot more time praying for others. Amen? Prayer, it, it, pride just seeps into every part of our life. Anger is rooted in pride. Lust is rooted in pride. Pride is my will. Humility is thy will. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. It's been said that the way up is down. You humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You be willing to lay down your life, to do it when no one's watching, to have the heart of a servant, and God in due time will know that he can use you because you've been faithful in the small things. You shouldn't do it with that motivation. You should do it if no one ever knows it, but those are the people that God will use. If we humble ourselves, it keeps us from having to be humbled by God. Amen? Isn't it better to be humbled by yourself? Lord, I'll do it. Just let me do it. I don't want you to do it because if you do it, it's not going to be fun. God can humble us in a way that's painful. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Remember those receiving this letter had incredible trials to deal with. They lost their homes. The Bible says his yoke is easy and his burden and light. When we're yoked to him, he carries the burden. Too often we want to be yoked to him and then we try to carry the burden ourselves. It's his. He'll do a better job with it. Let go. His yoke is easy. His burden is right, light. Lift your burdens to him. He cares for you. When no one else cares for Christians, he does. And look at these words of exhortation here. Be sober. 
Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know, it almost seems odd. Where did this verse come from right here? We're talking about the devil all of a sudden? Where did that happen? Let me tell you why. You know when Satan is most after you? When you're down. When is he most after you? When you're in the midst of persecution. When you've just found out you've been diagnosed with cancer, when you've just been laid off from your job, when you've just gone through something very difficult and you're in that place of being vulnerable and maybe even a little bit upset with God. And that's when the enemy shows up. And notice in this case, he comes like a roaring lion. He's not even hiding. You know, sometimes Satan is a serpent in Genesis. In 2 Corinthians, he's referred to as an angel of light. Here he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But you know what's great? At the cross of Calvary, he became a toothless, clawless lion. Amen? And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. But he's still coming and looking for those when you're down, when you're struggling, when you're straggling, when you're falling away, he's going to come after you and pounce on you if he can. The exhortation here is, hey, persecution's happening. Hey, things are very difficult. There's an enemy. And so how do you respond knowing that he's a roaring lion seeking who may devour? He says, be sober. Boy, this has got a lot of meanings to it. Be sober. The word sober there means calm and collected in spirit. It means self-controlled, but it also means abstaining from wine, and I don't think we should pass over that. If you number the number of dumb things you did after you've drank an alcohol, the list would probably be pretty long for most people in this room. Amen? It's amazing how our inhibitions drop and now we act stupid. We don't need the spirits, we need the Holy Spirit. And so we see here that he says, you know, be sober. Because when you're drunk, the roaring lion is in your back. Oh, look, he's lit. This is perfect. Let's bring this his way. Let's bring that his way. Hey, get your car keys and get in the car. Let's go. Let's get you on the front of the newspaper, Mr. Christian, sharing your faith at work for a DUI. How about that? Let's do that. Let's have you lower your inhibitions and cheat on your spouse. Here we go. Guys, it's when we bring ourselves to that place that the enemy is there to pounce. So we are to be sober. We're to be vigilant. The word there means to be watchful. Watching. Watching always, awake and on alert, never off guard. As the enemy is alert, he never stops looking for a moment of weakness to attack. I love that Satan's a defeated foe, but guys, he's never going to give up until he's in hell forever. You understand that, don't you? And it's a spiritual battle we fight. The good news is, is greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But he says, Our, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Then it says in verse 9, resist him. Okay, how do I do that? Resist him. Okay, I resist him. No, look at the rest of the verse. Resist him steadfast in the faith. How do you resist him? You remain steadfast in the faith. How do you resist the devil and the temptations and all that comes with it? You're steadfast in the Lord. What does it mean to be steadfast in the faith? Keep walking with Jesus. Keep trusting in him. Keep standing on the word of God. Satan has no answer for God's word. When Jesus was tempted, what did he say? It is written, it is written, it is written. 
You remember that? He responded to Satan with the word of God. You and I are not to address Satan, but the way we overcome temptation is walking in the word of God. The only offensive weapon in putting on the whole armor of God is the sword, which is the word of God. We want to have victory over the roaring lion. We stay steadfast in the word. The Bible says the word of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. As Christians, we can have victory over the enemy's attack as we stand in the truth of God's word, the written word, the Bible, the living word, Jesus Christ. Psalm 61 says, For you have been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. James 4 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Amen? Devil can't make you do anything. Flip Wilson was wrong. Then it says, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're almost done. Knowing that the same sufferings, one of the enemy's ploys when you're in the midst of suffering is to make you feel like you're the only one. Oh, see, God didn't love you. Everybody else at your church, they're all blessed. Look at you. You must be, you must have messed up and God didn't love you anymore. That's why, you know, that's the enemy, isn't it? And he's telling them, look, you're going through trials. Every other Christian who's standing fast for the Lord is facing the same persecution you are. That's the word from Peter. Don't feel like the Lone Ranger. If you're being used mightily by God, the enemy's not going to like it. The enemy will tell you, why would a loving God let you go through this? You know why? Because he wants you to grow spiritually. Look at verse 10. It says, but may the God of all grace... May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The first part of that verse is the best part. May the God of all grace. How much is all grace? It's enough. Amen? He's got enough grace. His grace is sufficient. Sufficient for what? To save us, to redeem us, to assure us of eternal salvation. It's the grace to save. It's the grace to assure heaven. It's the grace to build character in us and through us in the midst of trials. He's saying the God of all grace, I know it's tough. The God of all grace is on your side. Don't let the enemy ever make you think God's not on your side. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. In the midst of our suffering, God's grace is sufficient. He's at work. He's conforming you into the image of his son. The word there, perfect. He's perfecting you through trials. The word perfect means to render fit, complete, or perfect. I like that. Perfect. He's making us complete. He who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, and part of that completion is going to be trials. Amen? So when you're in it, recognize God is doing something. For Christians, a part of the work is completed through trials and suffering. The word there, establish, to make stable, to place firmly, to set fast, to fix, to render constant. Peter's prayers that God's grace in the midst of suffering would result in an even more steadfast faith. And then finally, he says, to strengthen and settle you. The word strengthen means to confirm, to make strong. The word settle means to lay a foundation. Guys, our trials are a foundation God builds on in our lives. We want to flee from them. They wanted to back away in the midst of them, and God's telling them through Peter, guys, I'm going to do this. I'm going to use it in a mighty way. It's going to bring glory to my name, and you're going to come out the other side of this more steadfast in your faith than you've ever been before. Guys, you get outside of the trial, and you realize that God's been growing you all along 
If you remain faithful and hold on to him through it, we will come out the other side of, this, of the trial more complete, more steadfast, stronger and more founded in our faith. Verse 11. It says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As Peter begins to bring the letter to a close, he can't help but praise God. He's praising God in the letter, encouraging them in the midst of their suffering. Guys, in the midst of our suffering, we need to praise God. Amen. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't just praise Him when things are perfect. We praise Him no matter what. And that's the encouragement. That's the exhortation. Even as we grow, even as we remain faithful, even in the midst of the greatest trials, know that the midst of that suffering, God's bringing glory. Finally, some encouraging words these last few verses. By Sylvanius, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Sylvanius is another word for Silas. And Silas is there, and he's the one, he's dictating the letter to Silas. Silas is writing it out. And he says to them, in the midst of all their trials, you are standing in God's grace right now. Guys, this morning, you can be going through the most difficult time of your life, and you are standing in God's grace right now. You need to be reminded of that, amen? You need to be encouraged. And then he says, she who is in Babylon... Elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. This is the church, she, that's the church, in Babylon. Most uh, people believe, most scholars believe he's speaking not of Babylon, but of Rome. And he's seeing those who are in this godless place. You know, Peter's writing to them from the place where persecution began. And he's encouraging them, but he himself is enduring it himself. We know from Christian tradition that Peter was crucified upside down. Peter knew what it was like to be persecuted, but yet he's encouraging and he's exhorting. And no doubt those words ring true or coming from somebody who knows what it's like to remain faithful in the midst of it. Mark, my son. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And he's not his son, but he's his son in the faith. He's the one whom he had discipled and poured his life into. And then lastly, he says this, greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to you all, who are in Christ Jesus, amen. I love how he ends it. Make sure you love each other. You know what? You guys are all in the midst of a great trial. Make sure you love each other. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, that was their culture. Today we'd say greet each other with a holy hug. Amen? And when we come together and we're going through trials, we're in this together. We are the body of Christ. The Lord is with us, but he's brought us as a body together that we might minister one to another. Do not isolate yourself in times of trial. We're here to love you, to hold up your hands, to be a source of encouragement. And he ends by encouraging them with peace. Peace to you all in Christ Jesus. Guys, here's the thing. They can be, have everybody in the world trying to kill them, but the only place that real peace exists is in Christ Jesus. They can have no one coming against them. If they're outside of the Lord, they have no peace. You cannot have peace if you don't know the Prince of Peace. Amen? I know we went a little bit over. I appreciate your, you know, being a, patient but can i encourage you may this chapter sink home with us lord drive it into our hearts may we respond to your calling if you're called to ministry tend the sheep tend the flock of god care for those he's put in your care i don't care if it's the two-year-olds i don't care if it's the children if it wherever it is whatever you're doing realize those are god's sheep and you be faithful to them treat them the way that would bring honor and glory to the lord if you're new in the faith submit to those in authority over you 
Learn from those. Seek out those who can disciple you and minister to you. The word of God needs to be the authority. We can't give out what we have not received ourselves. And then notice that they prayed. We need to pray. Guys, because we can't do this on our own. It's not us trying harder. It's us dying and being filled with him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for this letter. I pray that everyone here would be reminded the next time they go through a trial, if they're in one right now, that these letters, First and Second Peter, great words of encouragement and exhortation. And Father, I do pray, Lord, that you would just really fan the flames of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we pray because we know, Lord, we can't do this without you. We come humble and broken and desperate before you. Lord, we want our lives to count for eternity. And Lord, I pray whatever gift you've given every person in this room, you would stir it up and then we would be faithful to use those gifts for your glory. We'd be mindful of you when we use the gifts. If we're mopping the floors, we would mop them for you. Whatever we do, Lord, we would do to bring glory and honor to your name. We love you, Lord. We can't wait. We thank you for the promise that one day the good shepherd is coming for us and we'll be in your presence forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.